This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In Donald Trump's big immigration policy speech earlier this year, the now president-elect said he'd crack down on cities that protect undocumented immigrants. Number four, block funding for sanctuary cities. We block the funding. No more funding. And that's a risk several cities in Colorado appear willing to take. North Glen has just joined Denver and Aurora in reassuring their immigrant populations they won't comply with the Trump administration if it asks local officials to play a more active role in enforcement. But there are still a lot of questions around what the incoming president might ask of cities and what he could do to those that refuse. CPR's Vic Vela is reporting this story. Hi, Vic. Hey, Ryan. First off, what is a sanctuary city? Well, there's really no legal definition, uh, but generally speaking, these are cities that limit their cooperation with federal immigration authorities. Uh, Some cities have official sanctuary ordinances on the books, like Chicago, Seattle, and San Francisco, and Boulder's looking into joining their ranks. But many Colorado cities are considered unofficial sanctuary cities, like Aurora and Denver, because they're seen as friendly to undocumented immigrants. And we've seen officials in Aurora and Denver come out recently saying, look, we don't act as immigration agents and we're not going to change those policies under a Trump administration. And so there are cities saying they won't do the work of immigration enforcement. Is that a change? Have cities been more open to that role in the past? Well, deportations surged after 9-11 when states were eager to work with the federal government in the name of homeland security. Uh, Then in 2008, the Bush administration took it a step further and created something called Secure Communities. Uh, This was an information sharing program. And this allowed immigration officials to request detainers on people being held at local jails uh, who might be here illegally. So for a while, there was a lot of local and federal cooperation in this area. What changed? Well, cities found there were downsides to doing this. Uh, Here's Hans Meyer, who's an immigration attorney here in Denver. We in local police agencies are embroiled in immigration enforcement, you get the results that you anticipate. Bias-based policing, lack of trust uh, in local police to report crimes or to report victimization, costs shifted onto the local government for federal immigration enforcement. Then there were lawsuits over people being held in jail by local sheriffs who had no authority to enforce immigration laws. So jails started pulling back their cooperation with the feds. And a few years ago, the Obama administration replaced secure communities uh, with a program that's less reliant on state and local cooperation uh, and instead focuses on deporting high-risk individuals. At the same time, Colorado's own immigration policies have changed. Uh, Three years ago, the legislature repealed a 2006 state law that required local law enforcement to assist federal immigration authorities. And that brings us to today and the question of what a President Trump could do to reverse course in this area. In our conversation earlier this month, Governor Hickenlooper mentioned a 1997 Supreme Court decision that says local police can't be dragged into doing the work of the federal government. If that is true, what tools does that really leave? Well, as we heard in that clip you played a few minutes ago, uh, President Trump would uh, could try to take away federal funding uh, from these so-called sanctuary cities. 
But that actually may not be much of a punishment. I spoke with Sam Mamet, who's the executive director of the Colorado Municipal League. He provided me with data from a 2012 funding census for Colorado governments. And it shows that less than 2%, 1.7% to be exact, of all funding for all Colorado municipalities comes directly from the federal government. Here's Mamet. It's not significant because we don't rely on a lot of uh, federal aid to begin with. Most of our revenue at the city level in Colorado comes from locally raised sales taxes. We receive very little in state-shared revenues and even less from uh, uh, federal revenues. So not a lot of direct funding, but what about federal grants? Could cities be vulnerable there? Oh, yeah, they could be. And it's still not a lot of money in total, uh, but it could have a big impact on individual cities. Uh, For example, Pueblo recently received $875,000 in federal grant money to hire more police officers. Uh, I, I should say that Pueblo does not describe itself as a sanctuary city. But would that kind of funding be harder for cities if they, uh, if they don't comply with the Trump administration on immigration? We shall see. And, and there has been some thinking in Congress around this. Yeah. And, you know, P- Senator Pat Toomey has already introduced a bill earlier this year called the Stop Dangerous Sanctuary Cities Act. And it would take away certain federal grants from cities that don't cooperate with immigration authorities. That bill didn't go anywhere, but it could be revived in the future. Earlier, we talked about local law enforcement reporting undocumented immigrants to federal authorities. Does anyone out there actually envision them actively trying to enforce immigration law? Mamet, for one, doesn't think so. He says if Congress were to consider doing something like that, uh, they would have a huge fight on their hands with state and local officials. And Frederick Police Chief Gary Barber, who is the president of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police, says local law enforcement cannot just start rounding up undocumented immigrants, at least not under current law. The only time that we can interfere with somebody's liberty or take their property from them We have to be doing that under the color of law. There has to be a law that empowers us to do that. And we are not empowered to just go out and make generalized sweeps of the community looking for people who are here under immigration violations. The law just doesn't do that. But of course, all of this is incredibly hypothetical, Ryan. Indeed. What do we know about how likely any of this is to happen? Well, I talked to a lot of people for this story, and the one thing they all agree on is we just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, We really don't know what Trump is going to do yet, not just in terms of sanctuary cities, but on immigration policy in general. Uh, And it's not a given that a Republican Congress is going to give him what he wants. I spoke with Colorado Republican Representative Ken Buck. Now, he was known as an immigration hardliner when he was Weld County District Attorney, but he's not sounding particularly enthusiastic about one of Trump's major campaign promises. I don't think there is the will in Congress to uh, appropriate uh, the kind of money that's necessary to uh, arrest 2 million or 3 million people, to put them through the the necessary judicial process, and and to deport them in in a short period of time. I I just don't think uh, that will exist. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now, and I think it's helpful to keep things in perspective. Thanks so much, Vic, for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's Vic Vela reporting on what sanctuary cities might face under a Trump administration. So we asked you to circle back with us if you talked about the election over Thanksgiving, especially with family members of different political stripes. We are curious how things turned out. 
But we should acknowledge first that there was a deep desire to steer clear of the topic. Keith Chamberlain of Denver said he and his wife came up with a house rule this holiday. The first person to bring up the P word in politics is doing dishes all by themselves, by hand. Chamberlain was not alone in his desire to avoid political spats. This is Anne Fairbairn from Arvada, Colorado. We had a huge Thanksgiving dinner. We had people from seven different countries and our own family, which is multicultural, multiracial. And we are very different politically and socially from my husband's side of the family, but we love them very much. And so we felt that better than talking was to just live what's important, and that's making our home a place where people are welcome regardless of where their country of origin is or the language they speak or the religion they follow. And I think that what is important is the relationship. Frances Rossi of Denver did go there, though. Rossi emailed that her family spent Thanksgiving at a small cabin with eight adults and three preschoolers. She said they talked about specific issues rather than their feelings about President-elect Trump. Quotes, we have always been somewhat argumentative, taught by my father, who insisted on having a whole arsenal of reference books within reach of our dining table. At this Thanksgiving gathering, it was cell phones being tasked with verifying statements. I think this really kept the peace that we hold opinion as relative and value coming to an objective idea of what's happening. And we are used to disagreement, knowing it's normal and not the end of our family relationship. Brenda St. John of Grand Junction said she spent Thanksgiving apart from her biological family and has for years because of differing political views. St. John said she spends holidays with friends and their families. Not all of whom I agree with, but are all well-balanced enough to hear opposing ideas and open to positions that can be respectfully debated. As a mediator and child and family investigator for several judicial districts in the state, I see many families in conflict. Separated, estranged, and dysfunctional families will be the demise of our society. So if your family is gathering and arguing, be thankful. Be thankful for arguing. Well, the holidays aren't over, so continue to share how you and your loved ones tackle tough political talks. You can call 720-358-4029 to leave a voicemail about how those conversations went. Again, 720-358-4029. You can also record conversations with your smartphone and email the file to news at CPR.org. News at CPR.org. We may use your experiences on air and online. Coming up, when can you be sued? for causing an accident on the slopes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Try to see things my way Do I have to keep on talking till I can go on While you see it your way On the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone We can work it out We can work it out This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When you hit the slopes this winter, remember the name Casey Ferguson. He was ordered to pay $260,000 last month for colliding with a skier at Keystone. The good news for Ferguson is that his homeowner's insurance should pick up the fine. 
But it got us thinking about the liability skiers and snowboarders face and what you can do if you get hit. Evan Banker represented the injured skier in the Ferguson case. He is with the Denver firm Shalott Law. Evan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Your firm specializes in representing skiers and riders who are injured at ski resorts. I was surprised to learn that Ferguson's homeowner's insurance would cover a crash at a ski resort. Why does that insurance apply in these incidents? And most people don't know that's the case. Even lawyers I talk to don't know that's the case. But when you buy a home, it's your most valuable asset, and generally you have a mortgage on that home. If you weren't insured for your liability out there, uh, and we did take a case, and we won a case, and we won a judgment against you, you didn't have insurance, we'd put a lien on your home. The bank doesn't want to see that happen, and so they make you buy insurance for that. So your home is protected as your biggest asset, even when you're well away from home. And I I gather that this does not then translate to renter's insurance. It's a homeowner-specific thing. It actually does. Renter's insurance does usually include personal liability protection. Okay. How broad is the coverage? What kinds of collisions does it cover? It covers pretty much anything that happens as a result of your negligence that doesn't involve a motor vehicle. They want you to buy car insurance for anything that involves a motor vehicle. But out there in the world, we all owe each other duties of reasonable care. If you hurt someone, you're responsible for it. And if it's a result of recklessness or negligence, you're insured for it if you have homeowners or renter's insurance. Okay. In the Casey Ferguson case, he was going down an intermediate run at Keystone and collided with your client, a paramedic from Chicago named Tom Dubers. The court documents say Ferguson was snowboarding, quote, at a high rate of speed. So I'm wondering generally, who's the burden on when there is a crash? So the burden's always on the plaintiff to prove their case. But in terms of the duties between skiers, the uphill skier has the primary obligation to yield to skiers below. The uphill skier, right, because presumably they've got room to control, room to change. Right. And in this case, Casey Ferguson actually testified that he saw uh, Mr. Dubert four car lengths in front of him and slightly to the left as he was skiing down. So when you've got a situation like that, the uphill skier has really the only chance to calculate where the downhill skier is going and to avoid them or to stop and give that person room to just continue on down the slope. Okay. I don't want this to be a fear-mongering segment by any means because I think a lot of us think of collisions on the slopes as fairly common. How common is it for a skier to have to pay a civil penalty to another skier after a crash? How common is it, is it even that these become litigious? Well, I guess there's a few questions there. The yeah. first is how often do the collisions happen? Uh-huh. Uh, we know that there's about three injuries per thousand skier visits. And last year, there were about 13 million skier visits. Okay. We know that about 5% of those are uh, – 5% of the injuries are the result of a collision. So last year, that would translate to about uh, 1,850 collisions, roughly. How many of those become litigious? We handle about 40 a year. About 40 a year. And what do you notice about the cases that get pursued? Is it the level of injury or, or something about the, the people who bring the cases? Both. So generally, we see these cases come to us a few months after the collision happens. Medical bills start piling up and someone starts thinking, well, gee, this wasn't my fault and this wasn't what I signed up for when I went skiing. And they'll make the call. They're also they tend to be the more severe injuries. Uh, And one common thread that I see with a lot of cases, and this is anecdotal, but uh, many clients that come to me, Mr. Dubert included, will say, 
you know, if the person had just stopped and apologized, I would have never called a lawyer. Huh. Some advice, perhaps, for how you comport yourself on the slopes, do you think? Absolutely. Respect gets respect. And that's a phrase that gets thrown around on the ski slopes quite a bit. Uh, and it's true. You know, if you just stop and you say, look, are you OK? I'm sorry. Uh, can I get patrol? That goes a long way. So your client was awarded about $260,000. That was to cover time away from work, medical expenses. What would you say is the average award in these cases? There really is no average award. It really depends on the injuries. And if someone is hurt, you know, very, very badly, the number is going to be much larger because that's what it takes to compensate for the harm that was done. If someone's rendered paraplegic, obviously it costs much more to maintain that person's life. Than, have, have you had such a case? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, then if, you know, they have an ACL tear, that costs much less to balance out that harm. Would you, have, as an attorney, ever pursue a case where the plaintiff didn't have homeowners or renters insurance to cover an award? Generally, no, unless the person who was responsible is, you know, independently wealthy and uninsured. But that's not something you see. And the reason is uh, it's just not in the client's best interest to pursue a judgment against someone who's got no insurance and is not collectible. It's not, it's not cheap and it's not fun to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit. It can be quite stressful. So if at the end of the day, the best thing you're going to get is a judgment which would be dismissed in a bankruptcy, it's really not worth the client's time. Not worth pursuing. What do you notice about the nature of collisions or of injuries in the years that you've done this? Have they changed? Have they become more common? I don't know that they've become you know, more common on sort of a, a trend line. I think that we see it with skier visits in bigger years with more people on the slopes. You tend to have more collisions. We've got more and more high-speed lifts that have the effect of bringing more and more people to the top faster. And mm -hmm. so instead of waiting on a line, you have the same number of people at the resort, but they're actually skiing. And the more density you have, the more likelihood for a collision. And you find that people are more likely to be in a collision early in the season. Is that right? Yeah. Again, I think it's sort of a matter of how many people for how many skiable acres. And early on in the season and late in the season, you've got a lot of closed areas or areas that haven't been opened yet. And a lot of people that are really anxious to get out on the slopes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a skier's liability on the slopes with attorney Evan Banker, who's with the Denver firm Shalott Law. We have so far been talking really about civil liability, having to pay an award to a victim. What about criminal liability? Uh, the landmark case in that regard is the People versus Nathan Hall. This was an 18-year-old lift operator at Vail who crashed into a skier at Vail in 97, the man actually died as a result. What came out of that case, just briefly? So what the Supreme Court said in that case was that a person can be charged with criminally reckless homicide as a result of a skier collision. Uh, if you do something with what's called a depraved heart, something that uh, any reasonable person knows that an injury will result from what you've done, even if you didn't intend the injury and someone dies as a result, that would be reckless homicide. So the question was, can a reckless homicide case arise out of a skier collision? The Supreme Court, in fact, said, yes, it can. Uh, so could you be charged criminally? Sure. Um, in my practice, typically the crime that we see is leaving the scene of the collision. Leaving the scene of the collision. Correct. So everyone has an obligation, if they're in a collision, to stay with the person who's hurt and exchange information to facilitate these type of insurance claims if they need to happen. 
the only reason you're allowed to leave the collision is to go get help. And obviously, it's more important to get help than to exchange information. Uh, and you can exchange the information later. This echoes something that we have heard from others. Criminal cases related to ski collisions or reckless skiing do get prosecuted, though rarely in Colorado. Mark Watson with the Summit County Sheriff's Office told us about a few scenarios where you could be held criminally liable. As you said, if a skier takes off after a crash. And didn't provide their name or address to an employee of the ski area then that could become a criminal offense right there. Or uh, people are under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Uh, that's, again, a criminal offense. And uh, closures, going out of bounds. Watson says he's helped pursue criminal charges in all of those scenarios. The sheriff, meanwhile, in Eagle County, that's James Van Beek, tells us his office has investigated two incidents of skier collisions so far in 2016. And they're more likely to pursue incidents with a really serious injury like broken bones. It can be deemed as an assault, reckless endangerment. Um, So we look at the totality of the circumstances and what would apply. You know, is somebody skiing so negligently and recklessly and they should have known that they're going on and it's clearly marked in a slow zone, no jumping, and they're doing exactly that. And they seriously injure somebody or, God forbid, if they kill somebody. And uh, we would take them to court, just like any other person, any kind of assault. And I was fascinated to learn that the sheriff's office actually has officers skiing at Beaver Creek and Vail, working with ski patrol to educate skiers about being safe. As a result, you could actually be pulled over like you were on the road. I don't believe it's ever happened. It's, because we, try, we certainly try through education first. But uh, theoretically, yes, they could. If they're completely out of control, the officer can go all the way to the bottom of the hill or stop wherever they're at on the hill and say, listen, you're entirely too reckless and and you're going to get a summons. He says the Forest Service, law enforcement from that agency could get involved since most ski areas are on federal land. Again, all of these incidents where criminal charges are pursued are, are really rare. I'm curious, Evan, how has practicing personal injury law specializing in ski collisions changed how you ski? Well, I always swore when I started this that it wouldn't let me, uh, wouldn't have me change how I ski. Uh-huh. Uh, but I certainly do think I, I ski um, with an awareness that I might not have otherwise had, uh, always watching to see who's on the slopes. But that's something that really everyone should be doing. I try to ski away from the crowds personally. Away from the crowds. OK. But that has its own inherent dangers, too, I guess. It does. And those are the parts of you know the sport that make it interesting, right? Encountering trees and cliffs and steeps. Those are the dangers that we choose to encounter. The skier collisions are not one of those. A tree can't sue. You can't sue a tree. A tree doesn't have much. You can't get blood from a stone. You can't get sap from a tree. And if you did run into someone, I gather you have learned to apologize. I've never run into anyone, but I would absolutely apologize. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Evan Banker is a personal injury lawyer at Shalott Law in Denver, which specializes in ski accidents. We talked about skier liability and safety as the season gets underway in Colorado. Still to come, smarter roads could make for smarter mountain driving. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We just talked about liability on the slopes, but you have to get to the slopes first, which for many of us means taking I-70. It can be a dreaded route if there are traffic snarls. By 2020, the stretch between Golden and Vail, though, will be smart, with sensors talking to specially equipped cars. The system could ease congestion. CDOT spokeswoman Amy Ford joins me. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Earlier this year, CDOT unveiled a technology initiative called RoadX. What is it? How is it connected to I-70? RoadX is our effort to really be on the leading edge of how do we deploy technology to improve two things, saving people's lives on our roads and really improving congestion. And you see all this stuff out there right now about cars that can drive themselves, cars that can start talking to each other. And it's not just a pipe dream. It's something that's real, that's happening. And we want to deploy those on Colorado roads because, A, we can't afford to wait. And, B, we think it'll make a huge difference in how people drive. So it's cars speaking with one another, but also cars speaking with the road. Exactly. Um, explain how that would be deployed on this stretch of I-70. So we thought, let's let's not just tackle any road. Let's tackle one of the most challenging corridors in the entire country, I-70. Between the congestion, between the extreme weather, between the amount of people who drive on that corridor every day, and especially during peak hours like ski time, let's see what we can do. So what we will be doing is we're going to be doing a pilot study with a company called HERE. And HERE is actually an internationally known mapping company that is the system behind a lot of what you see in all vehicles on the road. We're going to be sitting and talking to them about how do we connect cars so that they are talking to each other and talking to our infrastructure and sharing information, let's say, hey, the car in front of you has stopped or there's a sharp curve coming ahead, slow down right now. That information and how you share that mass amount of data in between vehicles and with our infrastructure is what we call a connected vehicle future. And that's what we're going to try to start deploying on the I-70 corridor. How soon? We're actually going to start with a small pilot, about a thousand people. And there are a couple of ways that we can start connecting people and sharing this information. You can do it through cellular, i.e. with phones and with apps. Essentially take the phones and they start start turning the vehicles into somewhat of probes, not too dissimilar from what you actually have when you have Waze on in your car. W-A-Z-E. Exactly. But what this does is it actually makes that data collection and what we're going to try to do, turn it into automotive grade kind of data. So right now what you do on Waze is something where it's crowdsourced, right? You send in information, hey, there's an accident ahead, etc. What we're doing is we're going to try to take this information and put it into hyper-realistic data, hyper-identified, and then hyper-fast. So it shares information very, very quickly. And so it would deliver a cue to the driver to brake, or it would just deliver that directly to the car and override the driver? Both. Right now, it delivers it to the driver, and it will tell you in a voice control, hey, slow down right now because there's an end of a cue, for instance, in front of you, and I need you to slow down as you're going too fast. But eventually, as cars are driving themselves and we have these autonomous computer systems, it will send that information into the autonomous system and it will respond accordingly. Okay. So what's the timeline for the test? So the test will start here later this uh, winter. We'll start recruiting people to participate in it and we will have it going all through the winter season and into the summer. And if I want to take part, do I have to have some fancy newfangled car? No, you just need to be named Ryan Warner. But, you know, other than that, no. (laughs) Uh, No, actually you don't. With this, we are actually doing it through cellular. So you will be downloading an app. Eventually, we're going to extend that study so that we will be working on another technology where you do it through radios and radios that are connected through your vehicles. And that's just one small part of what the broader RoadX effort is all about. Okay. And the idea would be that this 
would be in all kinds of cars, every car at some point? Yeah. In fact, the federal government is about to mandate these radios be in vehicles, all of them rolling off the line here in the next couple of years. We estimate in Colorado alone that there could be in about 4 million of these vehicles in the next 10 years or so. So we're talking about 4 million vehicles sharing data incessantly back and forth. We think that is what is actually going to address the safety problem. We think, in fact, right now, estimates are that it would reduce accidents and crashes by 80% with that kind of data sharing and connection. And as well, it actually increased the capacity on our roadways because all of a sudden you have these cars that are driving much more efficiently on our roads. In fact, some studies think up to quadruple the capacity of our roads. The existing roads exactly. that's without adding capacity. Exactly. And so your agency says the I-70 corridor between Golden and Vail will be the first fully connected highway in Colorado. What have you been adding to the roadways themselves to deploy this? So part of this is also adding sensors into the infrastructure. And so sensors that will allow you to uh, feed information that is coming from all of these cars. Essentially, it speeds up the data sharing. This is on like guardrails? Exactly. Or? So it's small tags and sensors that would be put onto lights, into our roadways, uh, guardrails, even mile marker signs. So we'll be deploying that along the corridor as well. And again, it just creates this hyper speed when it comes to the data sharing. Expensive? Not as much as adding a new lane. Let's put okay. it there. <laughs> In, into the mountains. Exactly. Sure. So, you know, let's just say if you were adding a new lane, one in each direction on I-70, and you'd have to deal with the tunnel, going up to Vail, we're talking about a $4 billion project. For us to deploy this kind of technology in the corridor, we're looking at, you know, a 10 to $15 million program. So comparatively, that's, there's a lot of zeros after the uh, one to add lanes. That's where we think the return on investment is huge, too, and how we use what is really limited funds for us. So with the radio you mentioned, with the apps, I gather that means my 1982 Volvo, if I still had it, oh, if, if, if only it still existed, could be retrofitted for something like this. You know, it could be to an extent. With the cell phone apps, yes, definitely. You actually have to have sometimes an OBD port. This is something you plug something into your car. Okay. Your 82 Volvo, my 78 Volvo would not work in this situation. So cars really about after 2000 would. Okay. I want to say that last winter, your agency opened the eastbound Mountain Express Lane. That's the tolled shoulder lane between Empire and Idaho Springs. CDOT also installed metered on-ramps at some major ski resorts. So getting on the highway isn't quite as much of a free-for-all. Can you give us a, bra a breakdown of uh, last season's numbers, how they compare to previous years? Yeah, actually, last season was a huge success by any measure, if you look at it. The reality was, is when we opened at Express Lane, and remember, it goes from Empire all the way through Idaho Springs is where that was. When you look at the stats, you compare it from last year to the year before, yeah. all travelers, not just people who are traveling in the Express Lane, and again, you choose to pay a toll if you want to use that lane, all travelers saw an improved travel time savings of anywhere from 20 to 50%. So good example, Martin Luther King weekend, on average, you were having people travel between 5 and 10 miles an hour in the corridor. When the express land opened, we were up to 40 miles an hour in the corridor in all lanes. Some remarkable things that we saw, and that extended all the way through the summer season, too. 
In the meantime, what are some tips for drivers hoping to spare themselves long waits, traffic congestion? Any good secrets? Uh, the good secrets are this. Uh, know before you go. So flat out understand what's happening in the quarter before you get onto the road. So go on to Co-Trip for us. Uh, we will have information about what's happening in the quarter. And then again, I say this always every year, and I'm getting a bit repetitive, but it does matter. Your tires really matter on the road. Help us help you. In other words, if you have good tires, if you're driving well and you're driving the corridor well, that means we can keep things moving. Because right now, still for us in the corridor, 60% of that congestion is caused by crashes. And those crashes, especially in winter, are caused usually by bad tires and some of that kind of thing. So help us by making sure that you've got great tires. Well, the law is behind you here, isn't it, Amy Ford, that you have good tires, especially on this corridor, I-70? It is behind us. And in fact, if you do not have good tires, especially when we call what's called a traction law, which means that you have to have good tread and you have to have tires that are designated either snow or mud tires or four-wheel drive, uh, and you cause an accident because of those bad tires, you could be fined up to $600. While we have you here, there is congestion certainly along I-70, but also along other highways, thinking I-25, 36. Right now, carpoolers can use toll lanes for free if there are two or more people in a vehicle. But on January 1st, that minimum number rises to three. So there have to be three bodies or more if you're going to use that toll lane for free. Why is CDOT making the change? So this is on corridors like US 36 and I-25. And we are going to be making that change for two reasons. The first off is we want to continue the reliability of those lanes. The more people you have using the lane for free, the more it clogs up and congests and it starts impacting the, the ability for people to keep moving in that lane. And it, several years ago, this, this policy was actually put in four years ago in anticipation of continued growth in those lanes. So that's the first reason. Okay. The second reason is also now it's tied to money, especially on the 36 corridor. Corridor. We had a private partner who joined us in building these lanes, and they predicated some of their financial models on the fact that we are shifting to three. And so that's a piece of it, too. We anticipate that we are encouraging, in fact, people to look at how the carpool were working with groups like way to go and, in fact, Uber and Lyft and others to encourage people to think about how you carpool with three and how you can get into that free zone, if you will. But we also anticipate that some will shift and continue to use the lane and pay tolls, and they also plan on some of that revenue. So that was another piece that helps us pay for that system. So increasing that to three as the minimum number for carpoolers using toll lanes come January 1st. Amy, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Amy Ford, spokesman for CDOT. The agency says its Smart 70 project should be fully operational by 2020. There are links and videos to CDOT's RoadX initiative at cprnews.org. Still to come, the first cover girl model to wear a hijab. She's from Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Six feet of snow coming through my radio. It's raining in stilettos. From here clear down to Mexico And I know From holding on that steering wheel Them rules and tide Hope the wind Don't blow me off the road tonight Don't you know the ice and snow You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She has an infectious smile, velvety skin, smoky eyes, and several hundred thousand YouTube followers who seek her beauty tips. 
Hi guys! Okay, wow. Um, okay, we'll just get into it. So I already moisturized my skin. I used this skin saver. I don't know why I put it back in the box. I'm obsessed with Dr. Jarts. Nora Afia um, also wears a hijab. In fact, the Colorado native is the first woman to appear in a CoverGirl ad campaign wearing a hijab, and she's with me. Welcome to the program, Nora. Thank you so much for having me. You started on YouTube demonstrating how to apply makeup. Uh, what prompted you to start doing those videos? Um, so I had just um, had my daughter, and I was breastfeeding full-time. So I would watch a ton of YouTube videos, and I really liked the like. What's amazing about YouTube is you can find people that are super relatable. It's just like watching TV, but people that are super relatable. And um, so I would look for girls wearing the hijab, and I was more into the makeup side of YouTube tutorials. And I didn't see very many Muslim girls wearing hijab that started doing that. And so I thought I'd just like fill a void. And so I just decided one day to start making videos. When you describe people as as relatable on YouTube, I think what you're saying is you were hungry to see people who looked like you. Yeah, definitely. And who had the same lifestyle or just, yeah. Why do you think that there was a dearth, a lack of people wearing hijab, doing makeup? Is there a, an inherent tension there? Because I think of the hijab as, as something that adds modesty and makeup is something that n- doesn't, doesn't necessarily. necessarily. Yeah. So um, there was. I feel like people were kind of afraid to do and to put themselves out there just in general. What occurs to me as well is that the hijab is a face frame. So it accentuates everything you do when you're doing makeup. And yeah. if, if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. do, do you find that? Yeah, definitely. We've posted one of your videos to cprnews.org. You're 24. You were married at 18, have a daughter who's five. And you wore a hijab while going to school in Aurora. How did you feel about wearing it then? Um, I grew up pretty insecure about it because I have a twin sister and I started wearing the hijab before her and like our whole life we kind of did everything at the same time you know and then all of a sudden I just started in the middle of the school year and I just had to wear it so it was very different for me and I was I don't think at the time I was in middle school so I don't remember any other girls wearing it I was like one of the first why did you choose to wear it um I wouldn't necessarily say I made that choice. You know, it's just something you do when you, when you get your menses as a young girl. You're supposed to wear a scarf just like anybody else. If they take their kids to church, that's what they do. This was understood then in your family. Yeah. What did kids say about the hijab at school? Um, I feel like uh, girls didn't give me such um, a hard of a time as boys did. Really? Yeah, boys were the ones that picked on me the most. In, I would in, say. in what way? What would they say? Oh, I don't really remember. I don't. They just—I I just remember being treated completely different. Did you understand then why you were wearing it? Did it make sense to you, or did it feel kind of foisted upon you? I mean, looking back now, I understand why I wore it, but at the time, I didn't. Why do you wear it today? Um, because I see the beauty behind it, and you know, it really empowers me as a woman. Um, and makes other people look at me for who I am and, you know, listens to the words that come out of my mouth instead of just judging me from my appearance. Hmm. You think that they they see you more for who you are? Yeah, definitely. Are both your parents Muslim? Yes. Tell us about them. Um, so my dad's Moroccan. 
Um, he came here, I think, when he was like 18 or 19, like really young. And my mom is Swiss, German, Lebanese. Um, she, But she was raised, her dad's a Christian Lebanese. So everyone, I feel like most people assume that, you know, if you're Lebanese, you're Arab, like Muslim. But she actually converted be- before she met my dad. What kind of a home did that result in when you were growing up? Um, so it was always a pretty religious household. You know, we we moved back and forth to Morocco growing up. So I want to talk more about this CoverGirl gig. Yeah. You, you'd done some smaller campaigns for different kinds of makeup, I yeah. think. Yeah. Did you apply for the, the CoverGirl thing or did they come calling? <laughs> they came calling. <laughs> what was that like? How did you find out? It was amazing. Um, I got an email and it was from the casting agency that was working directly with them. And they said our client would re- is really interested in using you in our upcoming campaign. And they sa- they mentioned something about a commercial, but even up until when I got there, I didn't realize it was like as big as it is. Yeah, they said our client. Did they say cover girl? Yeah, they our client cover girl. Uh-huh, that's how they okay. said it. Yeah. And you heard that, and you thought, well, that's that's a sizable name. So I think it was a mascara ad. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And how was it to shoot the ad? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was very a little nervous for me because, you know, when I film my videos, I'm in a room by myself and it's just me and the camera. I can stop and do whatever. But this was me in front of like a set of like uh, a crew of like <laughs> at the time, I, it was like 20 men to me. You know, there's women there, too, but I just <laughs> see men like <laughs> so it's kind of awkward at first, but. Um, it was a lot of fun. You know, they, they put on my music to kind of like, you know, let me loosen up. And... Oh, they, they had you choose a track or something. Yeah. They, they kind of got you pumped up yeah. in, in the zone. <laughs> How do your parents feel about the makeup side of this and the, the now much more public side of this? Um, um, so the makeup side, in the beginning, like when I just started out, yeah. I think it made them kind of nervous. But they realize that I'm not doing it to like parade myself. You know, it's just Why it's, are you doing it? It's helped me um find myself. It's helped me gain the confidence, you know, that I needed and obviously, you know, I don't wear makeup all the time. I think I'm Now you say that because you're not you're not wearing makeup now? Yeah, I'm okay. not wearing You, you look absolutely yeah, gorgeous. Not, I wouldn't have known, but Don't okay. wear any make Yeah, I'm not wearing any makeup right now. So I'm I it's not like a mask for me. Like it Everybody assumes, you know, just because you wear a ton of makeup, you're cover- trying to feel confident because of the makeup. But. You, you have thousands of followers on YouTube. Do you know how many of them are Muslim? Can you can you get I some don't. sense? I don't. It's, it's interesting because a lot of my followers in Denver, I feel like the majority of them aren't. Are not? Yeah. Do you hear from Muslim followers? Yeah. So I, in the beginning, I always thought... I think the majority of my fault, I don't know, honestly, it's hard to say Uh because it just shows you, you know, um, when you look at the demographics, it just shows you the countries and the cities. It doesn't really. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on finding your voice. It (laughs) sounds like that's what's happened. Yeah, definitely. Nora Afia of Denver is the first woman to appear in a cover girl campaign wearing a hijab.
Boulder has a lot of work to do before a new voter-approved tax on soda and other sugary drinks takes effect next summer. The city has to determine how to calculate, collect, and administer the tax, then figure out how much it'll bring in. City spokeswoman Sarah Huntley chatted with CPR's Mike Lamp. It's important to understand that this was not a official city-sponsored initiative. This was something that citizens put together, requested a chance to vote on, and have approved. But that means that a lot of the work that goes into advance of a ballot initiative, trying to determine exactly how a program would work, has not yet occurred. It's not determined exactly how the money will be spent. Correct. The intention of the tax by people who supported it is very much um, around addressing and combating the problem of obesity in our population, especially among children. It was not ever intended to be a revenue-generating tax for the sake of generating revenue. It had this sort of social underpinning of wanting to provide for a healthier environment. So um, many of the provisions of what we can spend the money on are linked to that end goal. We understand that Boulder, Colorado is one of the fittest cities in the entire country. Is there a problem with the childhood obesity there? Well, the people who were supporting the tax felt like there is always room for improvement with childhood obesity. There are numbers that suggest that it is a problem here in Boulder and Boulder County more broadly. One of the concerns always has to do with underrepresented groups and whether they have access to healthy foods and healthy lifestyles. And there's definitely an interest in making sure that this impacts them in a positive way as opposed to a negative way. Now, before Boulder passed its tax, there was the one in Berkeley, California. What has Boulder learned so far from Berkeley, and what do you think you all will do differently? That's exactly what part of our research will entail, is reaching out to communities that have either implemented such a tax or have considered implementing such a tax to learn from their lessons. Boulder, I guess, still has a lot to learn about how it's going to do uh, its tax. Would you expect that eventually Boulder would become an example to other cities where they call upon you for some insight about how to do it? So it is not unusual for the city of Boulder to be among the first cities to try new things. And it is also not unusual for other cities to call us and seek our expertise. Whenever we have that expertise, we're happy to lend it to other cities, but we're also very eager to learn from others, too. So there are a lot of questions still to be answered, and the uh, tax takes effect July of next year, is that right? Correct, July 1st. At what point do you feel that you have to have the answers to these questions sometime ahead of July 1st? The city manager has requested a report from the staff group that's going to be working on this to come to council no later than the beginning of April. They're going to aim for the beginning of March to allow for the most public conversation possible. Is there some sense at the city that uh, all of these to-be-determined issues are maybe a little overwhelming, or do you all have confidence that it's going to get worked out and in time for the uh, implementation date in July? There's certainly issues to work out. We're very grateful that we have time between now and July 1st. Um, We are certainly well-versed in implementing procedures and policies based on the will of voters here in Boulder. We have a very strong electorate and an involved community. So we're eager to try to make this as successful as possible for everybody based on what voters said they wanted. The city of Boulder's Sarah Huntley talking with Mike Lamp. Boulder is now one of six U.S. cities to impose a tax on soda and other sweetened beverages. Finally today, hip-hop group Wheelchair Sports Camp has spent years establishing a reputation as Denver's biggest, smallest band. 
Founding member Kaylin Heffernan is 29 years old, but sometimes mistaken for a child. She has the brittle bone disability osteogenesis imperfecta. And the band's name, Cheekily, comes from the youth disability program Heffernan attended growing up. The band's music blends politically charged rap lyrics with cool, jazzy beats. They put out their debut solo album, pardon me, studio album, No Big Deal. Here's Wheelchair Sports Camp. The single is Mary Had a Little Band, recorded in our performance studio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.